Hi, welcome to the Your Adrenal Fix podcast, where we help exhausted and burnt out adults learn the truth about adrenal fatigue so that they can get their health back quickly. My name is Dr. Joel Rosen, and I've suffered with my own adrenal fatigue problem, and now I've made it my mission to tell the truth about adrenal fatigue so that we can get to the root cause of your problem and really teach you how to put the puzzle pieces together so that you could tap into your hidden energy reserves and have all day energy. So this podcast is for anyone who's struggling for years or feeling overwhelmed and burnt out or you're just feeling stuck you're going to get cutting edge information from all our different guests in different respected health fields to give you those important tidbits of information so that you can actually act on them and improve your health join us for our podcast i know you will enjoy it All right, hello everyone and welcome back to another edition of The Truth About Your Health where we help exhausted and burnt out adults understand the truth about their health so that they can get their health back quickly. And this is really part two of a two-part series with Martha Carlin, which is really a joy to have her here. We're going to tell you her story in a little bit. And we're talking about you have to fix our, our soils and fix our foods before we can fix our guts because if our gut health isn't doing well, we can develop a lot of metabolic issues and autoimmunity and specifically in Martha's personal experience, early onset of Parkinson and her husband, John. And as a result, Martha, Martha formed the BioCollective team, which is driven to access the microbiome to fuel innovative health solutions. Their team has developed easily, uh, or not easy, but have developed ways to easily comprehensive collect samples to be able to understand what's going on in those and then create a, a database and to be able to basically uh, unwind and figure out how the microbiome plays a pivotal role and what goes wrong. And ultimately in part two today, we wanna talk about learning how we can alter the landscape as Martha says, to be able to develop proper health again. So Martha, without further ado, thank you so much for being here once again and sharing your time with us. Thanks for having me again, Joel. Yeah, well, listen, I, I'm I'm pre- I'm very grateful that you're here, and I, I had the opportunity to just listen to our first part one interview, and, and and I think I felt the same way after I listened to it as I did when we were interviewing you that there was so much deeper, richer, I guess the analogous of soils and minerals in in the content that we were talking about that we just had to go on, and ultimately we were talking about altering the landscape, and so maybe you can catch us up with all that you've been through to realize that, hey, health is all about really altering the landscape and what that actually means to you or means to the future of, of, your, of, your, of your team and what you're doing with the BioCollective. Sure. Well, I, you know, I think this is an age old argument, if you will, that goes all the way back to, I think it was Claude Bernard and Louis Pasteur who were kind of lifelong scientific rivals in the hypothesis of the, you know, the pathogen makes the disease versus the terrain. And Claude Bernard was um, a terrain guy. And it's interesting because there is a famous quote. um, I think it's Claude was right. The, the pathogen is nothing or something on his, that Pasteur said on his deathbed. And I've used that a number of times 
in talks because um, when you start to look at the microbiome and individual organisms, um, what you what you start to see and learn is that um, it's not just a single organism. They work together in communities, just like humans do. And they work together for good or for bad, just like humans do. And so a lot of that has to do with what genetic capabilities they, they have, what they use and produce um, that benefit are to the benefit or the detriment of another organism. And so that was actually one of the foundational things that our chief scientific officer, Dr. Raul Cano brought to the company is he was a very early pioneer in something called microbial ecology, which is how microbes work together, but also in using the terrain to foster the right kind of community for what you want to happen. And actually one of the early things he did in his career was using microbial systems to clean up um, oil spills. So he was an early pioneer in that, but to do that, he actually would kind of come up with the growth media that would support the growth of the right kind of bugs that would then um, eat up the oil. So if you think about that in the context of the human body, you know, our the food that we put in our body is what's forming that landscape. Because whatever we eat, you know, we think we're eating it for ourselves. We're actually feeding different types of organisms in our body. And that's, you know, bacteria, fungi, viruses. You know, they like certain types of substrates, you know, sugars, fats. And it's also interesting that, you know, most microbes are um, multifunctional. So they have kind of the full tool set they can use you know, carbohydrates, fats, um, I'm missing the other one, protein. protein. And, and, but there are, you know, there's a handful of organisms that are very specialized that are lipolytic or, you know, like proteins. So, um, you know, you can better select for these specialists when you have diets, like say a ketogenic diet, which is more fat and protein that is going to select for more of those specialists versus the organisms that have all the tools, but particularly like carbohydrates. So. Yeah, that's a great uh, primer for sure. And, and I appreciate the, the bringing us back to history between those two rivals and on the deathbed realizing, you know, it really is the terrain that makes the difference. And I think that when we look back from a, uh, uh, um, I guess a perspective in a lot of ways on healthcare. If we're constructive or uh, at least objective about it, we will look back and say, oops, right? Because you think about, hey, let's just go in there from a traditional approach and wipe out the bacteria with antibiotics and then create all this resistance and strains. And then you have the pharmaceutical, sort of the, the big pharma companies saying, hey, let's figure out how to increase our crop yield and kill off uh, these pesticides with nerve gas or other types of pipe cleaners and, and, and stuff like that to realize that only, oh, maybe it's having an impact on our body. And yet here we are. And it's amazing with 
um, Dr. Raul, who you've hired with the microbial ecology and really understanding if we can repopulate the, the soils to, to bring on or get rid of these things, especially in the way of uh, an oil spill, and we can have bacteria that are harnessed to be able to kill, kill this disaster, then there's a lot of hope for what we've done in, in terms of adulteration. So that kind of catches us up to where does that lead us now? And I know you have the paleobiotic program and, and the yield and shield, but let's just take a step back because as I was listening to the last conversation that we had, of course, the whole reason you got on this path, Martha, was your husband, John, has Parkinson's and you were in your previous life a, a, a turnaround specialist for, for businesses. And here you are now being presented with this daunting task of your loved one having a, a life-threatening neurological disorder. So let's maybe talk a little bit about how that genesis started and because I was really intrigued to hear that and you said you'd be willing to share it on the podcast. So why, why don't you go ahead and give us some insight on that? Sure. Well, John and I first met in college actually, and he was a ahead of me in school. So I think it was my sophomore year, maybe his, anyway, it was his last semester. And so we, we dated and, you know, I was pretty, gaga for him but all of a sudden he just vanished didn't see didn't hear from him didn't see see him ever again and he graduated and was from another state so I, you know i sort of forgot about him i guess <laughs> and i you know went on with my life uh, moved to texas married someone else had a child got a divorce 13 years later in a bar in Dallas, Texas, I walked into the bar. It was like singles night. And I was there with a bunch of my guy friends and we walked in and this tall, handsome guy comes walking across the room. Like, you know, very, he, he was, uh, in very intent on, uh, talking to me, walks up to me and says, Hi, I'm Martha Carlin. I mean, Martha Carlin. I'm, I'm John Carlin. Remember me from, you know, the University of Kentucky. And he remembered my name, he, you know, and I was glad that he told me his name. I recognized his face, but I would not have off the top of my head uh, remembered his name. And we just immediately, it was like no time had passed at all, started talking to each other, set up till about four o'clock in the morning. And the next morning, I just talking about everything and catching up. I, I told my girlfriend, I was like, you're going to think I've lost my mind, but I'm going to marry him. <laughs> and, you know, I did also find out why he totally disappeared. Um, was my next question. Like, what, what, what happened? So that was actually that was a clue later as I started to unravel kind of the whole immune system, Parkinson's. Um, he actually got shingles on his face from the stress of final exams and all of that. So, you know, he had shingles all wrapping around his face toward his eye, which he, he was in danger of losing his vision. So, um, you know, he said he looked like the elephant man or something. And so he just kind of was like, 
I'm not going to let her see me like this and just went off and, you know, our, our ways parted. But I always tell people, I think we were, you know, we were meant to be together to solve this problem and help for the greater good of other people who have this issue. And that's why we were brought together because I mean, like we're both from like, I'm from Kentucky. He's from Ohio. I mean, I, I did move to Texas. He moved to West Texas, a totally different part. And we met in, in Dallas 13 years later. I mean, what are the odds of that? Right. Yeah. So then how long after, I mean, you're right. That is a tell looking back at it, that, when you have the reactivation potential for uh, a, a herpes virus, um, where the shingles goes along that nerve route, the the when the immune system is depleted, I always say when the mouse kites cats away, the mice will play. So when the immune system, and that's a very good lesson for people listening, that if you have reoccurring cold sores or shingles or mono, um, then the reality is that your immune system is always being hijacked, right? And we've talked about foods and the importance of nutritional sufficiency because any viral reactivation or any type of immune challenge is gonna be secondary to to nutritional deficiencies. So with that being said, Martha, how how long into the the reacquainting and, and getting back into um, I guess the relationship with John, did he start to have, or, the, or did he have the dreaded diagnosis? So that was about eight years later. So we reconnected in 1994 and then he was diagnosed in November of 2002. He did have, you know, earlier that year in 2002 was when we started to see, you know, the pinky tremor. He had some uh, tremor. Actually, it was kind of interesting he had a tremor in his tongue and, um, you know, he had the mask face where he was starting to lose facial expression. Um, now, and his Parkinson's has changed over the years where he's not tremor dominant and it's divided into people who are tremor dominant and posture and gait dominant. And he has very little tremor. Right. And then just, if you, if the listener wants to hear, what you did once you learned about that, that's all in part one. But ultimately, one of the one of the cliff notes was that when you start creating a database of what all the Parkinson's microbial uh, ecology or the terrain looks like, you could predict who would have Parkinson's without even knowing. And that was one of the things that you said was the, the lack of water homeostasis. And, and then from there, you just kept doing further and further studies and understanding molecular mimicry, and then the, the importance of mannitol and, and maybe sort of, so we can springboard forward from that, because one of the things I wanna talk about is you've developed a, a really an amazing probiotic formula that has eight different strains, and they help to, as we're talking about, alter the landscape or create that nice fertile ground. So let's maybe start from there, Martha. Sure. So, um, well, you know, the, the water homeostasis issue was pretty interesting. I think I mentioned this on the other one, but our, our uh, staff in the lab who processed the fecal samples 
could identify a person with Parkinson's just by looking at the fecal sample because parts of it were like the consistency of concrete. And when we looked back through the literature, there was really nothing about hydration and water. And, you know, I had spent a fair amount of time looking over the years at the mitochondria and, you know, water production capabilities by the mitochondria. So I, you know, had some curiosity around that, but I, I actually stumbled across a food connection um, that could be, uh, could be impacting water homeostasis in the autoimmune category. Uh, there, so there are aquaporin genes in the body. These aquaporins control the movement of water over the different membranes. And um, spinach, I think corn, and one other uh, food that John was eating quite a bit of actually have a number of this molecular mimicry uh, where the peptide sequences overlap with this aquaporin and they can cause autoimmunity reaction to the aquaporins and make that not work properly. So then fast forward a bit to I, when I came up with the idea for the probiotic, um, I went to uh, the, the Park World Parkinson's Con Congress in uh, Portland, Oregon, and some researchers were presenting data on uh, a scientist who had showed that the sugar alcohol mannitol could stop the aggregation of the proteins in an animal model and actually pull them out of the brain. And of course, you know, if we think about mannitol as a sugar alcohol, well, alcohol is a solvent. So, you know, that makes some sense logically there. Also, mannitol is a, a neutral molecule. So, it, you know, it could be, um, you know, doing something with pH. Um, and it is interesting in, in the fermentation of proteins in, um, you know, commercial production of proteins, you actually acidify the uh, solution to increase protein production. So I think again, back to terrain, pH has a lot to do with terrain and, and what happens in those ecosystems. You know, that's probably one of the, you know, key things you can change is, is your pH. But so we came up with this concept uh, for restoring um, mannitol production in the gut by converting glucose and fructose. Um, and what was interesting, we did this like in 2016, made the formula, you know, John had some really positive results. And then about two years later, some follow-on research came. Um, I think it's the University of Edinburgh had some research on a strain of Bacillus subtilis where they showed in a worm model that Bacillus subtilis could stop the tremor. Well, our formula already had a Bacillus subtilis in it. Um, and then there was a Korean company that came out with research on a, a strain of uh, lactobacillus plantarum. Uh, they actually did a clinical trial in Parkinson's and showed that they were able to improve the something called a UPDR score. And, you know, we had a very specific lactobacillus plantarum in our formula. Um, and we compared the genomes of those two. Our, our formula or our lactobacillus plantarum was actually selected to be able to break down glyphosate. So again, 
reshaping that landscape and getting the glyphosate out of the body. So, you know, that's sort of all those little pieces around um, kind of the concept. Um, but what we've also found along the way is that um, by producing mannitol from the glucose and fructose in the body, so restoring this endogenous production, you know, we were changing insulin profile or, or, you know, people's blood sugar. And so we're actually in the middle of a clinical trial in, in people with diabetes as a result of that. And I was not aware at the time, but went back to see uh, there's quite a bit of literature around insulin resistance and about two thirds of people with Parkinson's have insulin resistance. And there's, um, you know, evidence in both Parkinson's and Alzheimer of what's called type three diabetes, which may be insulin resistance of the brain. So, you know, this, all these pieces of how the, the product works just continue to kind of play, play into the mix. And in a lot of ways, I feel like the, the formula itself was a bit of a gift and even the strains, some of the strains that are in it that we were able to find and isolate either from a fermented food or, or some other source um, just sort of came about kind of miraculously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, it comes back to what you were saying with the age old argument of the terrain. And it's not like you're doing the reductionistic approach of, hey, let's just isolate this, this particular strain in a lab. You're getting it from foods and then identifying it from the natural food source. So it has every living intelligent thing in there. But like you said, we're being scientists in a way of isolating, hey, this one does this, this one does this, but we're not producing it in a reductionistic way like a, a pharmaceutical company would or a supplement company would. We're doing it in a natural way. And the other thing I really love about it is, as you already sort of alluded to, it in increases the short chain fatty acid postbiotic production of butyrate, which is super important for the taming of the, the, the galt or the gut associated lymphoid tissue or the things that impact the body's ability to lose tolerance because people need to understand when when you're not maturing the prebiotic probiotic postbiotic health of your microbiome because of adulterated foods and not getting anything that resembles something that mother nature made and stress and life and everything else in between you're not creating that that what I call the, the fruit on the vine, where that helps your body tame down the, the swinging at everyone and having an overactive immune system and really settling it down. So that's amazing. And then the other thing we talked about was the, which I thought was amazing, which is I'm just more and more fascinated by oxytocin and the ability to produce oxytocin and how therapeutic that is. And then we also talked about the ability to iron chelate or iron support so that doesn't accumulate. And of course, you and I have major ties in the whole world of copper availability and mineral deficiencies and ATP production. And then the other thing that I thought, oh, go ahead. It looked like you were going to say something there. Well, the, the copper, the, the copper connection, I made the copper connection with Morley actually 
after, you know, after we'd made the formula, I'd been out for quite some time. John had been taking it. Um, but I started looking at bacterial multi-copper oxidases and the ability of back, you know, the right type of probiotic organisms to, you know, carry these multi-copper oxidases for us and help us with that copper metabolism in the body and the importance of that to the mitochondria. And so we went back through the genetics of our strains and found that several of the strains in our formula have these multi-copper oxidases. So that was also right, yeah. kind of a right. Problem. And I didn't, I didn't mean to say, Hey, I'm the one with the copper that you and I met each oh, no, other. No, with. I just, yeah, it yeah. was a, it was a fun find after the fact. And I mean, that's actually the connection. You know, when I first met you, I was like, Oh, here's somebody who really gets the copper. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, it's amazing just to, sort of as a backstory, because I do a lot of genomic test interpretations on people that are exhausted and burnt out. And I was wondering why, like, why is everyone, everyone having a problem with their iron regulation? And, and, and it seems that for me specifically, and most of the clients we worked with, there's these copper genomics, which basically means in English, they're set up from a weakness to be able to transport copper or utilize copper for effective cellular respiration. And then some stroke of genius, you know, frequency just sort of led me to cure your fatigue with Morley Robbins. And it was just like, I guess, a wheel for a caveman, you know, it was like fire for, I was like, oh my gosh, all these things. And then when we were at the biohacking Congress uh, conference in Las Vegas, you introduced yourself and the forever has been changed from that. So, so as far as the other thing I, I love about what you talked about last time, Martha, was one of the uh, correlations that you noticed where strep infections, where, where people that had strep infections, the streptococcus preferred uh, glucose uh, as their growth factors. And based on the fact that you could get uh, a strain that you've made that you have all these isolated individual components that have all these benefits. Um, what? Let's take us through that so that we can now expand into other correlations. What, what was it again that you found with the streptococcus infections and so forth? Well, so when I kind of started out talking to, collecting samples from people with Parkinson's, taking their kind of the standard history, but I would also just do a personal in interview with everybody we collected a sample from to get their life story. And one of the things that early on people were mentioning was that they got a lot of cold sores until they got a diagnosis of Parkinson's and then they've never had a cold sore since. And I'm like, that's interesting. So I started to specifically ask that question um, to pretty much everybody. I, I found that also with a, a number of people who had multiple sclerosis. And so, you know, I started to dig a little deeper about strep and how it works in the body and, you know, what post-infection, uh, kind of symptoms that you might have. And so that, that was just kind of a dot connector for me. And I think I mentioned before I went to 23andMe and they were able to also connect that strep infection. But, you know, eventually that's also circled back to the use of antibiotics because, you know, 
as a child, if you're frequently having antibiotics and you grew up in the era that we grew up in, um, you were given antibiotics, you know, here's amoxicillin or penicillin, whatever. Um, and of course that will kill the streptococcus, but it's also going to kill a lot of the other really helpful bugs in your gut. And that's one of the major issues with the approach using broad spectrum antibiotics is that it has wiped out a lot of the really good beneficial probiotic organisms that we need. You know, the, the bugs in our gut produce many of the vitamins, hormones, and neurotransmitters we need to be healthy. So if we don't have that full complement, and so we were able to also through uh, one of the researchers that I've collaborated with over the years, uh, did a population study. And I think I might've mentioned that, that they were able to connect risk of Parkinson's with exposure to certain antibiotics 10 years prior to a diagnosis and certain uh, fungicides or, or uh, five years prior to a diagnosis. So if, you, if we go back to the landscape, you know, 10 years before you're getting a diagnosis of Parkinson's, you're wiping out the landscape. So let's say that's like uh, spraying napalm in Vietnam over all of the greenery and killing everything. I mean, that's how I, I kind of equate that. So you've set up the terrain with very little tools to deal with what's coming its way. And, you know, that's one of the one of the main drivers, I think, is is um, antibiotics and the connection there back to the food supply that I think many people didn't realize in 2011, Monsanto filed a patent for uh, the use of glyphosate Roundup. Um, I mean, that's the connection of the, um, as an antibiotic. But the unfortunate thing about glyphosate is that it actually destroys the, more of the good bacteria and a number of the uh, pathogens are resistant to it. So with the increasing load of glyphosate in our food supply, then we're constantly exposed to, you know, these doses of antibiotic through the residues in the food supply. And then as that market has continued to develop and the different approaches to how they sell it, you know, it originally started out that it was used in you know, when they're before they plant, they spray, kill everything. So start with a new field and then they would do some selective, uh, you know, spraying during the growth. And now it's used in, I think, more than 60 crops where it's used at the end of harvest to accelerate the death of the plant to get the uh, harvest done faster and in a more uniform way. And so when that, that happens, you have even higher loads of this antibiotic glyphosate residue on the plant. And there's an interesting short story there back in 2007 with the beer industry who used, uses barley and they started using glyphosate and barley in 2007. And the beer brewers were having trouble brewing their beer because the bacteria that are, are and fungi that are used in, uh, you know, the brewing of beer, the yeasts and the, and the, the bacteria uh, were dead in the barley. 
Yeah. So, so, okay. So to summarize, it, it's no wonder that we have 88% and greater of our population metabolically unhealthy. And you're saying, okay, we have the, the, the birth of the antibiotic era where we kill and drop the atom bomb in our microbiome and kill the innocent and the healthy, uh, or sorry, and the unhealthy and, and everything in between. But at the same time, doing the same thing to our food source and, and making it so not only are we not having the internal milieu of healthy bugs, but we're not having the external milieu of healthy bugs and there's nothing left in between. Um, and just sort of to go back to what you were talking about with the cold sores, that's a question I ask a lot of clients too, is how often do you have reactivations of cold sores, which is sort of the same thing as John having the, the shingles outbreak. And we really know that that's mineral deficiency. And when you put these antibiotics and chelators and so forth and pesticides in our food soils where, or in our food supply, there's no minerals left, so it's no wonder. Um, and then it's interesting as far as seeing some other correlations, which you and I have talked about where I look, I first looked at it as when I only really knew about methylation and MTHFR and the whole making SAMe and homocysteine and glutathione, uh, I, I really looked at it as, oh, that wheel is not working well. And when that wheel is not working well, those those viruses can reactivate. And that's still helpful from a clinical standpoint, because when we looked at John and we understood that, hey, there's a, a methylation or actually a B12 thing, a parietal cell thing, an antibody thing, maybe there's uh, pernicious anemia and there's something going on there. Um, so it, it, you see all these other correlations. And the reason why I, got, I expanded from that methylation is because I looked at it as that's only an income thing, whereas the expense thing is the iron oxidation, is the depletion of NADPH, which helps recycling of so many things, is the histamine, the glutamates, the, um, the electrical sensitivities, not turning on our antioxidant pathways. And when all those things are going awry, I don't even look really at MTHFR anymore because it's like saying, Martha, let's get you a job at you know McDonald's and really um, not and expect that to pay for your mortgage, your car payment, your your student loans, and really it requires us to to pay down the student loans and the car payments and not create so much expense so that the methylation slash income isn't expecting to do the heavy lifting, and that's why you see a lot of clients or people will say, "Well, yeah, I, I had MT, I have MTHFR, and I started to take mega doses of methylfolate, and it makes me feel worse." It's just as, as an aside. So, if you have a comment on that, I'd welcome it. But what I'd like to also do is transition that to, okay, well, you're you're not just doing the research, but you've also come up with ways to actually do something about it. And that's with the microbial ecology and yield and shield and paleobiotics. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh my gosh, this guy is falling. We have antibiotics, we have glyphosates and there's no left, there's nothing left to do. There is a lot of left to do. It's not just producing sugar shift and a probiotic to help you change the terrain, but it's also like you said in our last podcast, in order to fix our gut, we have to fix, fix our foods. In order to fix our foods, we have to fix our soils. So that's a long-winded question, but if you want to kind of go from there, that'd be great. 
Well, I may have a little bit of a long-winded answer um, because, you know, if I go back to the beginning of, of when John was first diagnosed and I started digging in and trying to figure out, okay, what could be, you know, I, I was trained in this method called transaction flow review. I can't remember if we talked about that, but in business where you follow every transaction that flows through a business, looking for the breakpoints, and that's where your risk is. And so I took that approach on, you know, John and the human side. And of course, the main things that flow through the body are, are food and water. So I spent a lot of time um, looking at the food supply, looking at the chemicals that are used on the food and looking at the genetic engineering of our food. And, you know, if you think about it, food is information. And our body is like a quantum computer. And so all the food that's flowing through our body is providing information. Well, genes are the code of that information. And so I dug very deeply into trying to understand more about how plants are modified genetically, how organisms are modified genetically, um, what happens in that process. And they use viral vector. I mean, they basically use like little pieces of code. It's like putting together, you know, object oriented code in software or something where you're, you're taking pieces and putting them together. And, you know, pieces of them are viruses. Vir viruses are the vectors that deliver, um, you know, the information into a plant or, you know, whatever is going to be, be modified. And then you have these little snippets of genes. So, you know, I had this whole thing in my mind that I've, and I've continued to look at that over the years about what genes are being used or targeted or, or how. So then, you know, we, we started to collect fecal samples and look at, we did whole genomes. So then I could start to see, I could see differences in healthy and unhealthy microbiomes in the presence of certain genes that were either, you know, targets of certain herbicides and pesticides or were genes that were engineered into the food. So um, that was a really inter interesting connection for me. But then when, when Raul came on board and, and we're you know, talking about the complexity of, of the problems in the microbiome and how to restore them by putting back the working systems that are missing. So our human probiotics, you know, we have sugar shift, we have one called the antibiotic antidote that you take after you've taken antibiotics to help restore the terrain. Um, we have one called the ideal immunity that has specific things that target foodborne pathogens. Um, so, you know, salmonella, listeria, that kind of thing. Um, you know, we have one for the heart that improves cardiovascular metabolism. Um, and we're, we're just bringing out one that helps restore uh, bacterial melatonin production. So helps with sleep at night. But even so we're like, no matter how much you, you can build these systems to really help humanity, you've got to go all the way back to the food and the soil, because the same thing that's happened to our gut has happened to the earth's gut, which is the earth's soil by constantly spraying these herbicides and pesticides on the soil, the soil microbiome is depleted. Well, plants need the soil microbiome just like we do 
to be able to extract the nutrients from the soil. So if they don't have the right kind of microbiome, then the plants are also minerally depleted. And so we think we're eating a healthy food, but it, you know, the foods have maybe 50% or less of the, the nutritional mineral content that they had a hundred years ago. And so we started to look at, okay, how can we make microbial, uh, you know, working systems like we've done on the human side for soil and plants and specifically to clean up the glyphosate that is in our soil uh, that is, you know, basically an antibiotic for the soil. So we developed um, a number of different products and then ultimately combined um, some of the mechanisms into uh, one product called Yield and Shield, which can actually uh, break down glyphosate all the way to, I think it's carbon phosphate and water. So it makes that phosphate bioavailable to the plant. Um, and then feeds a broader microbiome in the soil because it's gotten rid of that antibiotic. And it can do that in about, it gets rid of a, about 90% of it in um, 90 days. And then what that does is accelerate. So we've seen accelerated seed or, or improved seed germination. So if you have low seed germination rates, you can get higher seed germination you get more plant mass, you get more um, yield on your crops. So we have, um, we've used it in oil and gas grassland remediation. We've used it in organic farming. And we're now working with some people who are trying to reclaim conventional agricultural lands and turn it back into um, organic, which takes some time. And if you don't have the right remediation for the glyphosate, it's still going to be there in the soil. So that we're making those for, you know, larger commercial farming operations. But we decided even for our consumer business that we would make a little eight ounce bottle that's enough for somebody to, you know, it's a concentrate and they can use it in their backyard garden. So we've just produced that. And that's also available. So people sometimes go, okay, wait, this is a probiotics company. Why do they have a garden thing? But it's because it's all connected. No, it's because you, you're conscientious and you have a bigger purpose and mission. And you realize that you can't reductionistically, reductionistically reduce this without having a domino effect on that. And, and you're aware of that. Just curious, as far as for personal use and not so much commercial for big agriculture, how would I know if I like just wanted to plant in my backyard, if I felt like I had a glyphosate issue or a mineral issue, would I just assume guilty until proven otherwise, or would it just help it other way anyways? I would, it would help it anyway. It would help it anyway, because it does restore a, a microbial ecosystem that works very well to provide a lot of the key elements that a plant needs. Um, but I would assume that you have it. And the reason why I say that is we did some field trials with our work and measured the glyphosate in the different soil plots. And we used, and I, we used a, a miracle Grow um, soil, you know, the bags that you get uh, at, the, at the Home Depot or wherever as our control soil, but we went ahead and tested that to see if it had any glyphosate in it. And there were 
And I'm sure, you know, they haven't been testing. They get materials from different places to make their compost and to do what they do to make their soils. But, you know, my expectation after that experiment and seeing that there was glyphosate in the miracle Grow soil is that it's, it's in every, it's ubiquitous. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, yeah. soil amendment. And I got a different brand. Uh, this was probably three or four years ago in a, you know, I had a raised bed garden and I, I filled it with some soil that was organic, you know, a, a compost soil uh, bag that I filled it with and none of the plants did very well. And they were all sort of anemic and yellowish and, um, you know, I think it was one, a pH thing, but also very likely that soil amendment that I got had had some kind of glyphosate residue in it. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to highlight where even from uh, you get organic foods from one farm, but from the wind and the and the runoff, everything is adulterated at some point, at, at some level, I would imagine. As far as Martha, are the are, is there a kickback or is there a concern that let's say the commercial industry wants to use a product like yield and seal to restore their, their soils, but then now they're dealing with uh, less crop return because of now you have pests that can come in and adult it can, can do the things that the antifungals or the anti-pesticide things we're, we're aiming to, to eliminate. Is there that concern now? Well, I, I think, you know, when you talk to the big ag commercial type people, they're very vested in um, their approach to farming, which is a very chemical intense approach to farming. Um, if you have very healthy soil and a, and a healthy microbial ecosystem, you don't have the problems that we've, we've created, you know, self-inflicted wounds in both our internal ecosystems and the external food systems by the approach that we've, we've taken. So, I mean, I'm, that's not to say you're not going to have any weeds if you go, you know, all organic, but you're going to have a, a much healthier ability for your plant to compete. Um, and different bacteria. So, I mean, maybe a lot of people may not know this, but, um, so the, the corn that is engineered, it's called BT corn. Well, BT is actually, and stands for Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a strain of bacteria. So this bacteria naturally prevents, um, you know, certain worms and Lepidoptera and stuff. And that they, ba they basically took a natural microbe and the gene involved with that toxin production and put it into the corn so that if, you know, if a worm eats that corn, it eats that um, BT toxin and it kills the worm. So, you know, if we think about all the tool sets of, you know, a healthy microbiome in the soil and the plant, they have a lot of tools naturally if they have a healthy ecosystem to defend themselves against, uh, you know, the predators. It's what drives me crazy, Martha, in terms of you don't see this in public health anymore. And, and I've even considered going back to school and getting a master's in public health just to not be a, a person that understands the problem, but 
is unlike you that does something about it, you know, like want to do something about it. And the reality is, is that you don't see anything about public health anymore about we're endowed with the strong immunity if we eat healthy foods and healthy nutrients that it, it, it becomes one of those things where now that you've increased your healthy immunity, you don't need all these other supporting things to help your healthy immunity. And those that do very well or don't have major challenges with exposures to pathogens and viruses uh, have a healthy immune system, but yet we're not preaching good, healthy eating, getting out in the sunlight, putting your feet in the ground, uh, having good relationships, not being completely fear mongered and, and allowing that to just increase what I call your oxygen consumption, right? Um, interesting on the, uh, I wrote down on the, uh, the heart cardiovascular, the bacteria melatonin and the antibiotic uh, one that you have. Um, just as an, are they, are, well, I do wanna make sure we talk a little bit about water too. So just as a quick answer, um, because I have, again, I go, oh gosh, I got part three now. Um, as part of the, um, the, just the insights, are those vastly different with the strains that you have or with the particular foods that you're making to produce those, but oh, you can't put enough in one super right. pill, you know? Well, so I think that's also the misconception of in the probiotics industry. Um, a lot of people just think, okay, more strains is better. Like I'm going to put, you know, 20 strains in here and that's better. We use a computational modeling system that we built called Bioflux that helps us understand how they work together in a system. And we, you know, we use that to design our formulas, but we also very early on in the bio collective did work for other companies, taking the genomes of their strains and analyzing their formulas and comparing them to their competitors. And what we saw is some of these formulas where say they put 10 or 12 strains together, what happens in that system is one of the strains is basically using up all the resources. And what you get after say two or three hours is only that strain growing. All the other ones have, you know, petered out. And so we're designing working systems that will work together as a community over say seven to 12 hours, depending on what we're designing. So I always tell people, I mean, it's great if you want to try different products that we have, but you don't want to take them all together at, at once right? because, right. you know, it needs to get in there and get its system working for several hours before you throw something else on, on top of it. So. Right. Right. It's a great thank you for sharing that because you and I had a conversation about the other companies that have proprietary information that uh, that basically suggests a diet, which to, to me, that doesn't have a strong foundation because it's so temperamental based on stress and travel and diet and genome and all of the above, where I think that the best is to understand from a good health intake also know maybe some metabolic real-time lab results, also know genomic factors and have a, a good review so that you can say, hey, for the next 
four to six weeks, we want you to go with these strains that don't necessarily have a really cool name, like antibiotic this or that, but has right. the same profile that would be therapeutic for, for those people, which I'd love to talk to you about in terms of like masterminding on that. Um, as far as the two more questions are sort of the whole paleo paleobiotics and what that is, and then maybe you can weave in, you also mentioned, which we haven't even talked about is when John first got sick, it's like, okay, as a system analyst and where the breakdown goes and what flows through, it's food and water. We've talked about food. We haven't talked about water. So I'd love to hear your two cents on what, not even two cents, thousands of dollars of, of insight on, on what the water, what, what, what we need to do about water as well. So maybe I'll start with that because it dovetails back to paleobiotica. So, um, you know, what, what a lot of people don't realize is that our water systems, the design of our water systems and water purification and all of that, that had such a tremendous impact on public health uh, because so many diseases are waterborne. Um, those systems were designed 100 years ago, let's say, and they haven't evolved to take into consideration uh, pharmaceutical pollution or chemical pollution that is now coming into our water system. So over the years, industrial waste is now flowing down into the wastewater system and, you know, they can wash their hands once it in, enters that storm sewer. Um, and pharmaceuticals, you take an antibiotic, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 65 to 75% of that antibiotic will be excreted unchanged in your urine, which goes into the wastewater. So, you know, somebody's taken an opioid, uh, uh, you know, a hormone. Uh, Not to mention people them. putting them in the toilet supply, right? When they're, right. when, they're when they older. throw them away. So, yeah. you know, they right. dump them down the, the toilet because often they're, they're told to do that. Right. Um, by medical professionals, just throw them out. Um, but those pharmaceuticals go into the water supply and the environmental working group did some uh, pretty comprehensive work, I think in 2012 and published on some of the major U.S. cities and how much pharmaceutical pollution uh, was in and what drugs were most prevalent in the different water systems. One of the ones is an over-the-counter is uh, um, ibuprofen. And what a lot of people don't realize is that taking ibuprofen over and over and over, like constantly actually increases the permeability of your gut lining. So that can contribute to leaky gut. So if you're just getting these things, you know, small doses in your water supply all of the time, you know, you're taking your neighbor's drugs, I say. So that's one of the first things when people say, what's something simple I could do? Um, and I say, you know, filter your water, make sure you're, but when you do filter your water, of course, then you're filtering out the minerals. So you've got to, um, you know, put back the minerals because doing reverse osmosis and some of these heavy, heavy filtrations are also, you know, taking out the, um, the trace minerals that, that we also need. So it's kind of this tricky little balancing act. And then that goes back to, you know, the water's flowing into our public water supply, but it's also 
all these chemicals that are used on the land are and with the cattle, the antibiotics used in the cattle, the you know the big ponds that hold their uh, their waste. You know when it rains, it uh, overflows and that gets into our water ecosystems and our rivers. And you know one of the things that we talked about with paleobiotica and making uh, products to help the soil and the water. Because if you, if you think about the fact that you have an organic farmer here and next door a conventional farmer, but there's a, a river or some body of water flowing along the edges of their properties and they both draw water from that, you know, depending on the direction of the, the flow of that water and where, when and where they're pulling it out, the, the organic farmer is getting contaminated by the chemicals that are flowing into that water. So part of our thought also was, you know, paleobiotic could, could do the same thing for the land and the water that we're doing on the human side to clean up you know, these, chemi these chemicals. You know, and some of them, they call forever chemicals, but what's interesting about microbes is, I love microbes because they can do just about anything. They're just so amazing in their ability to transform things, you know, toxic things into good things, but they can also make toxic things. So they're used in a, you know, so many ways industrially. And when you start to see all the, the different ways that microbes kind of underlie our modern life and how they're used as, as tools for so many different things, um, we have a tremendous tool set and the story behind paleobiotica actually is Dr. Kano came from, uh, as I said, you know, microbial ecology. He was a professor at Cal Poly for many years. He had an early company called Ambergene and he was a pioneer in a field called paleo microbiology. So ancient microbes. And he developed the techniques for cracking open ancient amber. You know, if you remember the mosquito in Jurassic Park, well, not exactly that, but um, opening up amber. Amber is basically a resin from tree sap, which has a sugars in it. Even the stone itself has this tiny amount of food source that over billions of years can continue to feed that microbe. And so he built this collection of over 2000 strains of bacteria and yeast that he isolated out of these ancient amber occlusions and deep sea cores from the bottom of the ocean. So there are these pristine organisms that haven't been adulterated by all the chemicals and things in our world today. And um, you know, some of them have some amazing abilities for DNA repair, um, UV radiation protection. So, you know, that's how it helps the plants, the soil. And, and so we're using that suite of microbes to design things for the ecosystem outside the human body. That's awesome. I was just about to ask. So are you using that as part of your, your um, paleobiotica mission to support water so two two things i got well a lot more than two but 
two proprietary things are I'm going to create a shirt with uh, I love microbes, you know, oh. as one of my main shirts. And then the other one is your gut health is your general ledger. That was from our first one. Yes. Uh, I, love that. I love that as well. So as far as uh, filtration, I know reverse osmosis removes the minerals, but are you basically saying for the average household that is, you know, impervious to, to these things? to to just get a filter or get ro or is there a special other technology that you endorse or do yourself personally or recommend martha we have a lot of water technologies i'll say you know we we have something called a john ellis water machine that does um uv and evaporative um distillation we have a ro machine we have a hydrogen water machine but i think even just for the average person because all of that equipment can get very expensive is just even at a minimum if you can get yourself a, a, a breta or some type of a carbon filter where you're filtering out as much as you can or a berkey they you know there's a pretty affordable berkey countertop uh, solution that's a carbon filter that gets a lot of this out. Um, but I, I tell people all the time, do not drink tap water. And that means when you go to a restaurant and they bring water to your table, do not accept tap water at your table. Right. Yeah. And I also would further that in terms of when you get your own water, get it in a bottle and instead of a plastic, because that sort of rubs off. So just as an aside to put you on the spot, uh, as far as Kangen water goes, what's your thoughts on that? Have you heard you know, about that? I, I know there's, I'm not an expert on that, but I, because it has the ability to control pH and we talked about the impact of pH, I think, you know, understanding and connecting pH to the microbiome is really critical. And I haven't seen enough of that kind of research connecting those dots. Um, but I, I, I do know people who have done the alkaline water and had great results. Um, but I also know that you need stomach acid in your gut. I mean, you can, you can take, um, betaine and some other things to replace that, but there is definitely a connection between loss of stomach acid and, um, dementia even all the way back to some papers in the 1940s. So, um, yeah, yeah. I have a friend who I'll talk to off the air. That's an engineer that they look at different, different utilities of, of using it. So it's not just across the board, like for, for disinfecting and using it as a natural way. And I, again, but I was just interested in your, your opinion on that. So um, as far as, I, I think we're uh, lots of great information as far as what would you tell the person that would be listening to this and be overwhelmed by it, but maybe they have a loved one or themselves that they were diagnosed with a neurological autoimmunity that can be very daunting and to, you know, and I, and I'm urging you to send me your stuff because the loved one, the caregiver, of that person also gets lost in the shuffle and is overwhelmed themselves. But what would you say in terms of, I mean, we, we got less than five minutes to sort of succinctly summarize, hey, like just, just like a diagnosis of cancer, like God forbid, don't just run to the person that told you you got to do the big 
um, the big sort of machinery of what we do, like take a step back and take a deep breath, survey the land. Um, what, what else would you tell that person to do knowing what you've known and all the things that you've done? Obviously, they probably won't create a, a whole industry like you did. But what would what would you tell that average sort of uh, weekend warrior once they have these these diagnoses, what what they should be doing? Well, I think probably the number one piece of advice is take control of your health by taking control of what you put in your body. And you can do that by taking small steps. You don't have to do it all at once, but, you know, take a small step today and, you know, eliminate one thing that might be a problem. Maybe that's wheat because of the glyphosate or the allergies or that kind of thing. Do something about your water. That's probably number one. But you can take these small steps in starting to understand and pay attention to your body because your body is telling you something. And so that's one of the things, even over 20 years, we're still learning with John is when something's not working well on a particular day, we stop and we go, okay, what's my body telling me? What did I do? What did I put in the system food-wise the day before? You know, and just like quick antidote, John uh, has had some long COVID symptoms and um, it's impacted his, his Parkinson's and his walking toward the end of, end of the day. But he did this fast mimicking diet by Prolon for the last five days. And he's had the best five days that he's oh, had cool. since he had awesome. COVID. And so right. we talked about how, you know, fasting and allowing the body to rest and cleanse can have a pretty significant impact on how you feel. So, I mean, that really the clue is you, I mean, the, the advice is you don't have to do this all at once, but really start to understand back to my transaction flow review, you know, what's flowing through the body and how are those transactions impacting you and be conscious and aware of what you're putting in and how it's making you feel. And as you start to do that and become more and more aware I think you will start to feel better and realize how the food and the external environment are impacting your, your health, whether that's neurological or cancer or um, right. you know, just if you're healthy. No, that's a great answer. In fact, I'm glad to hear that I'm on day five myself today. So I'll be happy when I can go and eat tomorrow, although I've done it. I have an interview with the CEO next week of Prolon to, to, to discuss that. And I, I knew that was going to be a, a, a game changer for John. And as we work together, get into shifting into the metabolic flexibility, given his you know long history of being a marathon runner and everything that you've learned. So Martha, a big hug to you. I, I really am grateful for people like you that uh, that put the world on your back and have a deeper mission to not just get answers for your loved one and yourself, but for the world too. And, and, and I do think that you were put together for, for that purpose. So um, future success to you. I wanna to talk to you about all of the products that you have so that we can help our listeners with those as well. 
And um, I got to run because I got another client here today. So I appreciate all your time and, and energy and everything else in between. Thank you so much for everything you do, Martha. Thanks for having me, Joel. And thanks for everything that you do too. Well, great, thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in to today's episode of your Adrenal Fix podcast, where our goal is really to teach exhausted and burnt out adults the truth about adrenal fatigue so that they can get their energy back quickly. And if you happen to be suffering with your own exhaustion and fatigue-based problems and you're not getting answers and you're frustrated and you're concerned and you really want to get back to the things that you're not able to do, then maybe it's time for you and I to book a discovery call. If that makes sense to you or what we talked about makes sense to you, then this is an opportunity for you and I to troubleshoot and figure out what's going on in your body, what's not working, what have you tried, how's it impacting you. Most importantly, figure out where you want to go with your health and why you're not able to bridge that gap. And if I feel I can help you and all the things that you need to be doing, I can recommend to you, I'll let you know. And if I don't know, I'll tell you that too. But my goal is for you to leave this call with a step-by-step game plan to learn how to bridge that gap and get your life back quickly. If I feel I can help you, I'll tell you what that will look like to work together. However, there's no obligation to do any further work and there's no charge for the call whatsoever. It's just really a one-on-one time for you and my team member or myself to get true value out of what's not working with your health and what are you missing in order for you to make that next step. If that makes a lot of sense to you, then go ahead and go to www.adrenalfatigueworkshop.com, all one word, adrenal fatigue workshop.com forward slash apply now spacing is limited and it's a first come first first served basis and you have to be willing to to make that next step to get your health back or at least be serious about it if we feel we can help each other just go to www.adrenalfatigueworkshop.com forward slash apply and i look forward to giving you value and getting you your health back